Well, please turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 56 at Tri Lakes. In the last few weeks, we finished reading the book of Nehemiah, and one of the things that really struck me in that Old Testament reading was the way that God brought about reformation in the lives of his church through the simple reading of his word. And Paul wrote to Timothy, telling him to commit himself to the public reading of the word. And so even now, as we have a a psalm reading and then a gospel reading tonight, let us attend to the reading of God's word as we ought, knowing that God brings reformation to us as his people, even through the simple reading of his word. This is not just the preface, the thing that warms us up for the sermon. This is actually a means of grace, and so let us attend to the living and active word of God. Let us attend to this knowing that just as God spoke all things into creation, he works, even as the word is read in our hearts. Here in Psalm 56, we read this psalm given to those who will be hated in this world. And Jesus taught us that as his disciples, just as he was hated, we too will be hated. Well, this psalm really is about Jesus, and it teaches us as we follow in his footsteps how to commit ourselves to God and to suffer well on the pilgrim journey throughout this world, how to really trust in the Lord and hide ourselves in Christ. Well, let's give our careful attention to God's word. This is Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. Let's turn forward now in our Bibles to our gospel reading. This evening, turning to Matthew chapter 22, we pick up halfway through this chapter, beginning at verse 15 and reading through the end of the chapter and really in this text we can simply marvel at the wisdom of Jesus Christ. See here how he points us even to a close and careful study of his word. We uh, as those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ have all the wisdom that we need hidden in him. So let's look to him now in God's word. Matthew chapter 22 beginning at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. 
And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when, they, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do, you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Amen. This is God's word. Let's turn together in our psalm books to Psalm 19b. Psalm 19b will be our psalm of preparation, but it continues on with that theme that we just read here in Matthew 22 of the wisdom of Jesus Christ, for really all of Scripture is about him, as he explained on the road to Emmaus. And here we sing, The Lord's most perfect law will make the soul revive. Let us sing this as a psalm of preparation that in the preaching and hearing of God's word, he may do his work and accomplish his will in our hearts and lives. Let's stand together and sing Psalm 19b. The Lord most perfect love will make the soul revive. 
Turn with me in your Bibles now to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This evening we're going to consider these final two verses in Peter's second epistle. And as you're turning there, if your Bible's open already, you will see the focus really of this final chapter of Peter's second epistle. He makes it clear in the beginning of this chapter that his aim is to stir us up as God's people so that we might live our lives in light of Christ's return. He teaches us that we are to live each and every day as if Christ could return, having an urgency about the way that we live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Really, in verses 14 and what follows to the end of the chapter, Peter is there unpacking what it means for us as God's people to wait. What is to characterize our lives as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ? In verse 14, it means that we are to be diligent, to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 15, we're to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Well, here in verses 17 and 18, we're really going to consider how it is that we as God's people maintain our momentum on this heavenward journey. How do we maintain our momentum? Well, let's give our careful attention now to the reading of God's word. I'll begin at verse 14, but we'll really focus this evening upon verses 17 and 18. This is the word of God. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in, in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word. Well, after 40 years of faithful service to the Lord on the mission fields in Africa, Henry Morrison and his wife returned to the United States aboard a ship destined for New York City. While en route, Henry began to wonder aloud to his wife, Will anyone remember us? Well, when the ship entered the harbor, the Morrisons looked and they saw thousands of people cheering. A band was playing. And banners were hung that said, Welcome home. Henry and his wife were absolutely elated, and this welcome was far beyond anything they could have ever hoped for or imagined. So they returned quickly to their rooms, they gathered up their luggage, and they returned back to the main deck. And when they returned, they saw the crowd dispersing, the banners had been taken down, and all of the commotion was over. The fanfare had ceased. So what had happened? Well, they began to ask questions, and then they quickly un understood. You see, unbeknownst to them, President Roosevelt had just recently been up. He flung their luggage onto the bed with frustration, and he sat down sulking. He said to his wife, honey, I don't get it. Forty years of faithful service to the Lord. Forty years of pouring out our lives into ministry and service. And yet we come here and not a single soul welcomes us home. Well, his wife loved him very much and wanted to console him. And so she went and sat down next to him on the bed. She put her hand on his shoulder and comforted him with words that he would never forget. She said, Henry... Honey, you have forgotten something very, very important. You're not home yet. You're not home yet. 
You see, Henry had lost sight of the big picture. Henry really had forgotten the whole of reality. President Roosevelt may have been returning home, but the Morrisons were still en route. They were still on their heavenward journey. They were not home yet, and it's a glorious thing that they were not home yet. Brothers and sisters, too often we are tempted to find our homes here. Too often we, too, lose sight of the big picture. Too often we lose sight of reality, setting our hopes and our hearts upon far lesser things. Henry Morrison needed a change of perspective. And this change of perspective is essential to each of our hearts as well. Here in Second Peter, the Holy Spirit's aim is to stir us up to maintain this proper perspective as we make our way home. We are not home yet. And we are not to settle and to live our lives as if this world is our forever home. Hebrews 11 describes God's people as those who have set their sights on heaven, as those who are not looking to this life as the end or the goal. No, they were looking and longing for what would await them. Hebrews 11 begins by saying that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things unseen. What are these unseen things? Well, Hebrews 11 describes them as an inheritance, as the city whose designer and builder is God, as a homeland, as a better country, as a heavenly one. And so Hebrews 11 describes all of us as strangers and exiles while we're here on earth as those who have here no home. Well, since this is so, how are we to make our homeward journey? How are we to maintain momentum as we make our way home? Well, in these final recorded words from the Apostle Peter, he gives us three ways to maintain momentum. So let's begin with the first. We are to keep on guard. We are to keep on guard. God's word here reads, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Peter uses his favorite word in this final chapter one final time, and it's that word, beloved. And his repeated use of this word underscores and highlights his love for God's people. And these are his final words, and so we need to really appreciate the deep well of love from which Peter's words flow. Peter says, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Well, knowing that the ignorant and unstable will come and twist God's word to their own ends. Knowing that false teachers will arise from within and among the church. As long as we're on this heavenward journey, we need to keep on guard. In other words, one of the primary obstacles to maintaining our momentum on this heavenward journey is false teaching. It is the error of lawless people, as Peter puts it here in our text. So what is the error of lawless people? Well, when commentators try to define that specifically, they end up arguing with one another. But the text itself actually provides us with the complete answer. Look at your Bible and follow along as I read. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the way that Peter positions the error of lawless people in opposition to our growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ provides us with all of the insight that we need into that phrase, the error of lawless people. The error of lawless people is anything that hinders or impedes your growth in grace. It is anything that slows or inhibits your progress in the faith. One commentator put it this way. He said, the lawless people whom Peter refers to were all those who claimed in any way that we will not have to give a final accounting of the way that we live our lives. Well, these in diverse ways aim to sever the relationship between the promised return of Jesus Christ and the many gracious and God-given implications upon our lives, those things given to us there in verses 11 and 12. We are to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. So hearing this, we are to keep on guard against anything that threatens our progress in Christ. And Peter uses this language of swept away. Now oftentimes, and it's true of our city, cities have signs in specific parts of town where heavy rains will create very dangerous and deceptive circumstances. To the undiscerning, when these rains come, the water may look inviting. It may look like a fun place to play, but these, these waters are very powerful and deceptive. And so these can become quickly a place where the unguarded are swept away. Well, here Peter is alerting us to always be on guard against the error of lawless people. So make no mistake, their errors are enticing. Their errors will appeal to your flesh, and they are deceptive. They are like those waters. On the one hand, they are inviting, but on the other, they are incredibly powerful and dangerous. They can sweep you away in an instant. One moment you are enjoying what seems like harm, harmless fun, but then in the next, your life is on the line. Brothers and sisters, how might we be at risk of being swept away by the error of lawless people? One commentator helpfully points out that no one sets out to give themselves over to lawlessness or to be swept away. No one thinks that they are going to be the ones in this danger. And because of this, we can make the mistake of believing that we are somehow immune and that we are not at risk. But you see, believing that lie is actually the very first step in opening yourself up to this threat. The reason why cities must point, post signs is so that people will remain on guard. It's because of the deceptive nature of the threat. And that's the reason why God's word here posts this sign for us because there is a deceptive threat threatening our spiritual lives. Remembering that we are not home yet, we need to always keep on guard. If we are going to maintain momentum heavenward, we must be constant and vigilant when it comes to all of the things that might tempt us toward complacency. Listen, any idea that hints at having arrived in any way is an idea that must be immediately confronted and disposed of by the Word of God. Because we are not home yet. We have not arrived. So long as we are on this earth, so long as we are still in these bodies, we must be ready to take captive any and all thoughts of having arrived. Think about all of the ways that we are tempted 
to think that we have arrived in some way. Think of all the ways that we are tempted toward complacency. We can be tempted toward complacency by things like our baptisms, by church membership, by a profession of faith, by weekly church attendance, by holding office in the church, by experiencing a season of success in the Christian life, or by getting through to the other side of some certain trial. When we stop and think about it, almost anything, or maybe anything, can become a temptation toward complacency. And whenever you begin to believe, even if only to a slight degree, that you have arrived in some way, well, it is then in that moment that you are in danger of being swept away. So are you on guard? Are you on guard? In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us about this time when Barnabas was swept away by the errors of others. Who were those errors committed by? It was Peter and others who began to separate themselves from the Gentiles while they were celebrating the Lord's Supper with the Jews. Paul writes about this, saying he had to go and confront Peter. He had to correct this error. Well, now we're reading these words from Peter, and he knows that the threat is not something that exists out there, but rather it is a threat that exists within here. It's a threat within the church. Sadly, over the last two years, our denomination has had to deal with some very serious discipline cases. And these discipline cases all had to do with the ordained leadership of the church, and specifically teaching elders. All of these men took vows to submit themselves to respect the authority and discipline of the church. They all made this promise before God. They all promised to heed the counsel given to them by their brothers. But then when this became a practical reality, when the rubber met the road, we might say, they refused to submit. They did not keep their vows. It was as if they took those vows to submit with an added caveat. And that caveat was, so long as I agree. I will submit to the authority and discipline of the church so long as I agree. Or so long as I think I need it. Well, in these ways, these men had become a law unto themselves. And they have now been shown to be, in this way, lawless people. And sadly, we are watching as many are swept away with them. Because many were not on guard against them. When this becomes a practical reality in the church, it is far, far much harder to deal with than we are thinking right now. Back in chapter 2 of Peter's second epistle, he teaches us there that false teachers arise from within the church. He says you feast and you fellowship with these, which means you build relationships with these people. And it is these very relationships that then cloud your judgment. And so we must keep on guard. Here Peter is teaching us to be on guard in two ways. We need to keep on guard individually that we personally do not become complacent, that we do not believe some lie that we have arrived. But then collectively, we need to keep on guard against the unaccountable and the unsubmitted. Now, Peter warns us here that both of these will have destabilizing effects upon the unguarded and the undiscerning. 
When you are swept away with the air of lawless people, you will lose your own stability. So make no mistake. The consequences of this destabilization are devastating. And they're devastating in many, many ways. We're talking about churches being ripped apart, presbyteries fractured, individual families left with unanswered questions, personal crises of faith, and so many innumerable unseen ripple effects throughout the lives of God's people. The destabilizing effect of the error of lawless people is innumerable. And this is why we need to keep on guard that we do not believe any subtle temptations toward a personal complacency or a corporate compromise. To maintain our momentum, we need to keep on guard. Well, then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? Well, Peter answers that question by teaching us, second, to keep on growing. How do you keep on guard? You keep on guard by keep on growing. Now, boys and girls, I need your attention. Most of you, if not all of you, have learned to ride a bike at some point. Adults, I think you'll get this too. What was the hardest part about learning to ride your bike? Well, if your experience was anything like mine, it had to do with starting and stopping. You see, if mom or dad gave you a push and they gave you momentum, riding your bike was actually really easy. No, starting and stopping was where the difficulty was. And why is that? Well, it has to do with momentum. If you have speed, if you have forward momentum, riding your bike is easy. But if you don't, starting can be very hard. And stopping, because your momentum is slowing, can also be very hard. And so maintaining your momentum is actually what makes riding your bike easy. Well, there is a similarity here with the Christian life. Here God's word teaches us that we too need to maintain our momentum heavenward. We need to be on guard against anything that might stop our momentum. We need to be on guard against those temptations that we will face toward complacency. And here God's word is clear. How do you do that? You do that by growing you keep on growing. We're not home yet. And we are to grow every step of the way. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, this command to grow can seem really strange. Because you don't go around to your houseplants and say, grow. You don't go out to the garden and say, grow. You don't command these things to grow. But if we will just reflect upon our own lives physically, it can begin to make sense. Now, to be clear, we don't make ourselves grow physically. We don't control our cells or the biological processes that make us grow. We don't make those things happen. But what do we do? Well, we attend to all of those things that God has given to us for our growth. We ensure that we eat enough nutritious food each day. We ensure that we get good rest and that we exercise. We ensure that we live in an environment that promotes growth. Again, at the end of the day, we actually don't provide for our own growth. We cannot cause our own growth. But that fact does not ever cause us to be negligent to attend to those things that are for our growth. Just because God gives the growth does not mean that we don't eat. 
Well, the same thing is true of us spiritually. We need to attend to the things that God has given to us for our growth. Now, we could turn to a number of different places to answer the question, well, what are those things? But I'm going to limit our consideration, our answer of that question to the text right here. Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in just six words, he captures what it is that we need to attend to for our growth in grace. He gives us six words. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge, that's two, of our Lord and Savior, two more, Jesus Christ, two more. Those six words summarize what we are to attend to. And when I think about these six words, I've placed them into three categories. First of all, we are to grow dependently. This is some of what it means to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace refers to God's favor to us, and there is no growth apart from grace. So we grow dependently. The only growth that occurs is growth that occurs as a direct result of God's grace, as a direct result of God's favor. So if you and I were to depart from a dependence upon God's grace, well, we will immediately stall our momentum Second, we are to grow increasingly. By this humble dependence upon God's grace, we are to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Biblically speaking, knowledge has to do with both information and relation. You cannot claim to know someone if you do not know anything about that person. And conversely, you do not know someone if, All that you know is information about that person. No, uh, this idea of knowledge has to do with an increasing combination of both knowledge and relation. You must have information and connection. And so to maintain our momentum heavenward, we need to grow increasingly in our communion with Jesus Christ. We need to grow increasingly in our communion with Jesus Christ, and that brings us to the third category, which is comprehensively. We need to grow in our communion with Jesus Christ comprehensively, or in other words, as he has revealed himself in the Scriptures. Here God gives to us this summary of who Jesus is. And if we are not careful, we can be guilty of forming our own conception of who Jesus is according to our own imaginations instead of as he is revealed here in his word. And so we must know Christ comprehensively or as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And God's word summarizes who Jesus is in four words. He is our Lord and Savior. He is Jesus the Christ. These four words summarize who Jesus is in his person and his work, in his humiliation and in his exaltation. He is both our Lord and our Savior. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and he was the Christ who came as promised. You see, each of these speak to very important aspects of who Jesus is, and when you meditate upon each of these, They will open up for you who Christ is in amazing ways. What does it mean for Jesus to be my Savior? What does it mean for Jesus to be my Lord? What is comprehended in that name, Jesus? And what is wrapped up in that title of Christ? 
Well, if you will only try to answer those questions, you will be sent into an unending meditation across every last page of Scripture. You will grow comprehensively. You will grow in your communion with Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Scriptures. So if we are going to maintain our momentum heavenward, if we want to keep on guard against complacency and stagnation, we are going to grow in our communion with Jesus Christ, which means we're going to grow dependently, we're going to grow increasingly and comprehensively. So consider your own relationship with Jesus. Consider your communion with Him. Are you growing now in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? This is, after all, the primary relationship of all of life, and every single aspect of your life flows out of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Maintaining your momentum heavenward means maintaining a vibrant communion with Christ. Well, there is one more aspect for us to consider this evening. Since we are not home yet, we need to keep on guard, we need to keep on growing, and finally, we need to keep on glorifying. We need to keep on glorifying. Here, Peter ends with the end. He, en- he ends with the end of all things. What is the end of our guarding and our growing? What is the end, really, of everything? Well, boys and girls, you know the answer to these questions. The Shorter Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our ultimate aim, our ultimate joy is to glorify God. And so while we're on this journey heavenward, we must focus. We must focus so that we will never forget that at every moment we are called to glorify God. Have you ever considered the opposite of the first catechism question? If man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, what is man's chief temptation? What is the chief distortion to that God-given end of our lives? Well, it should come as no wonder that our chief temptation or the chief distortion of that God-given end is that instead of glorifying God, I glorify me. I make it all about me. Sometime around the turn of the fourth century, Augustine coined a Latin phrase. It's incurvatus in se. You can hear what he's getting at. In curvatus in se, translated into English, curved inward on oneself. Augustine said that the essence of our sin is that each of us are turned inward upon ourselves. We take all of God's good gifts and we turn them inward upon ourselves. We even take God himself and turn him inward to make it about me. Because we are curved inward on ourselves, we are tempted to make it all about me. All of us, due to sin, are incurvatus in say. That is the curse of original sin playing itself out in our lives. And this is a subtle and constant temptation in our lives. However, if the essence of our old nature is that incurvatus in say, then the essence of our new life in Christ is... Ex curvatus ex se. And you can hear it again. Ex curvatus ex se. It is a life lived outward for the glory of God and for the good of other people. 
Now, Christ himself is the only one who ever truly lived a life lived outwardly. He lived all of his life, every single last moment, to the glory of his Father and for the good of every single individual with whom he interacted. But you see, one of the things promised to us in the gospel is that Jesus Christ fundamentally transforms us by taking us in that place of an inward curve and increasingly beginning to bend it so that it will become an outward curve aimed at mirroring his own. And that is why Peter ends here with the end. In order to maintain our momentum, we need to keep on glorifying God. Our constant temptation toward complacency is also a temptation toward making it all about me. Nothing will stall your momentum like thinking that everything else is about you. And so I want you to remember four simple words. Are you ready? It's not about me. Four simple words. It's not about me. You need these words. I need these words. Standing at the ready at every single moment of life. I need these words to reorient me in every set of circumstances in my life. I need these words when I wake up and when I go to bed. I need these words when I'm busy and when I have free time. I need these words when things are going well and when they're not. I need these words when I'm healthy and when I'm sick. I need these words when I'm a young person or when I'm old. I need these words when I'm working or when I'm retired. I need these words when I'm with others or when I'm alone. You get the point. We need these words at every single moment in our lives. In all of these times, and any other time that you might imagine, you need those four ready words at the ready to reorient you. You need to be able to say to yourself, it's not about me, which is the negative version of what Peter's saying here. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You need to say to yourself, it's not about me, it's all about him. In each and every set of circumstances of life, it's about him. And if you will, if you will hear those words, it's not about me, and it is about him. It will change your perspective in the most glorious way. I wonder if Psalm 115 was the backdrop of Peter's words here, because it begins and ends with the same two ideas that Peter has there in his closing words. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give and then the psalm closes, Psalm 115, 18, with, But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. That psalm helps us to say it's not about me. And to remember that in Christ's redemptive work for us, he is taking us from that place of being stuck with that inward curve into an increasingly growing into Christ's likeness with an outward curve. And he puts us, that psalm puts us in the only proper place, which is worship. The most glorious place you will ever find yourself is finding yourself in that place of freedom found in self-forgetful worship. That is where your joy will be found. And so in closing, I just want to highlight two things. I want you to see first how the inward curve 
will come in and subtly steal your joy. But even given that second, I want you to see and understand and remember always the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I began by telling you about Mr. Henry Morrison and how he hung his head when he felt forgotten. He was so disappointed that no one had remembered him. Sadly, even his missionary service at that point in his life subtly became all about him. In that moment, he was turned inward upon himself, and it stole his joy. Thankfully, his wife was there to reorient him, telling him, Honey, you're not home yet. Henry Morrison's heart was longing for home. Well, in 1924, Mr. Morrison went home. He went home to be with his Lord. And there he received a welcome that could not be compared with. It far exceeded what he saw in New York City Harbor. For there he saw King Jesus smiling with warmth and saying to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Henry Morrison made it home. And yes, in that moment in his life, that inward curve stole his joy. It devastated him. And yet, looking forward, we see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to him. Because Christ was standing there to welcome him home. Brothers and sisters, remember, you are not home. And remember that Christ is faithful. You can probably all think right now about innumerable times in which you are curved inward upon yourself and how it actually stole your joy. Remember, Christ is faithful. And as you are trusting in him, you are on your heavenward journey And here he gives you three keys to maintaining your momentum heavenward. But ultimately, your trust is in Christ. And he is faithful. And while you are on this heavenward journey, you are to do so in anticipation of a great homecoming. In anticipation of seeing King Jesus smiling upon you and saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. And it is that idea that allows us to live a life that says to him, both now and to the Gracious God in heaven, who are we? Who is man that you are mindful of him? Oh Lord, we are curved inward upon ourselves and too often we make all of life about me. We take your good gifts. We take you, our great and gracious God. We take the gospel. And sadly, we can still turn even these glorious things inward. And so we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the way that your word sets before us again reality. And we pray that we might remember That we might remember these things so that by remembering them, we might always live in light of them. Thank you for the reminder that we are not home yet. Thank you for teaching us to be on guard against that inward curve. To keep on guard against a personal complacency and a corporate compromise. 
Thank you for the call to keep on growing. And we pray that you would bless us in that end, that we would truly grow each and every day in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Bless us with an increasing communion with Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would truly grant us your spirit that we might keep on glorifying you. Please take away from us that curve that makes it all about me, that inward curve, and instead give us uh, an increasingly outward curve that would mirror that of Jesus Christ so that our lives might be marked by your will for us. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Give us those words at the ready. It's not about me. And cause us to live in light of your holy word. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Lord, we call upon you knowing that only you can do it. But we call upon you knowing as your word teaches us that whatever you call us to, you also provide. And so we come before you with open hands, pleading with you, saying, Lord, glorify your name. Do this to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.